Paul gave that amazing statement, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the future glory, with the glory that is to be revealed to us or in us. And the reason Paul could say that is because he had considered mentally, he'd taken, as it were, on the one hand, his present sufferings and placed them on one side of a set of scales, and he'd taken, on the other hand, his future glory and placed them on the other side of the scales, and he discovered that his future glory was far heavier, weightier than the lightness of his present sufferings. He said they are beyond compare. They are incomparable. Our present sufferings are light and they're momentary. Our future glory, it's weighty and eternal. And as Paul continued from that verse to to really give us uh, support to that amazing claim that our future glory is beyond compare, remember what he said in verses 19 through 27. He said that there there are three groanings. This whole world groans for future glory. This whole world that has been subjected to the curse because of Adam's sin, to frustration and bondage and death and decay, it's longing eagerly for the day that it will be set free to enjoy the revelation of the glory of the children of God. It's in birth pains, Paul said. Like a mother who goes through agony for the ecstasy of having a child, this creation right now is agonizing as it waits for the ecstasy of what it was meant for, to be the dwelling place of the children of God. But not only does this creation groan, Paul said, Paul also said, we Christians groan. We groan inwardly. Because we long eagerly with the Holy Spirit dwelling in us as the first fruits. We long eagerly for our resurrection bodies. We long for our full and final adoption as children of God. We long for that day when we will see Christ and be like Christ. Remember what C.S. Lewis said? He said, that we will share in Christ's glory in this way. We will shine like the sun. But not only does Christian grow, not only do we as Christians groan, but we spoke last week of the sympathetic groanings of the Holy Spirits to help us all the way to our future glory. In our weakness, we don't know what to pray. You know, that, that verse, as I've been thinking about it this week, the Apostle Paul, who was this great theologian, who because of life in this present world with all of its suffering had moments where he was so weak he didn't know what to pray. But he took great comfort and encouragement from the fact that the Holy Spirit himself intercedes for us groanings too deep for words. And what did the Holy Spirit intercede for? The saints. And what did he pray for? the will of God to be realized in the saints. And the question that you and I need to ask is, what is the will of God? And that's what's answered in verses 28, 29, and 30. Now, these are astonishing and astounding truths, but you need to know 
you and I will get the glory. Because God has saved us. God is sanctifying us. God is working within us by his spirit. And God will do it because it's all to his own glory. So Paul and now and enlarge on the will of God for our lives. Let's read Romans. I want to begin this morning with a question. The question is from a favorite hymn of mine. In fact, we're going to sing uh, this hymn as we close this service. You'll see it there in the first stanza and in the third line. What more can he say than to you he hath said? What more can God say to us this morning through his servant Paul regarding our assurance of salvation? What more can he say? If you've been here for our series through Romans chapter 8, Paul has written this chapter in many ways to evangelize the Christian. To evangelize the Christian who struggles with assurance. Dear Christian, you should have full confidence and absolute certainty that you are safe and secure. Your future hope of glory is certain. Remember chapter 8 verse Chapter 8, verse 1, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. None whatsoever. Right now, no condemnation. Because verse 3 said, Jesus Christ was condemned in the flesh for our sins. We've been set free from the enslaving power of sin. How so? Verse 2. The spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set us free from the law of sin and death. We've been set free to live righteously. To to keep God's righteous requirement. Verse 4. How so? Because we no longer live according to the flesh, but we live according to the spirit. To assure us, remember verses 5 through verse 11, Paul set up that contrast. Here's what someone who lives in the flesh lives like, thinks like, acts like. Here's what someone who lives like in the spirit thinks like, acts like. And those of us who live in the spirit, we, we, we found assurance that we are in the spirit. And then there was verses 14 through 17. Oh, the, the, the summit in many ways of the union with Christ. Yes, we're ju- justified. Yes, we're definitively sanctified. Yes, we're being progressively sanctified. But we also need to the wonder and the glory of our adoption. By the spirit of adoption, we cry, Abba, Father. We pray as Jesus prays to the Father. And, and, and he wanted to assure us of that truth. And so he said, the spirit, the Holy Spirit, testifies with our spirit that we are indeed children of God. And not just children of God, we are heirs with God and fellow heirs with Christ. We are set to inherit all that Christ will inherit. We're set to inherit Christ. We're set to inherit the Father and the Spirit in the new creation. What more can he say to you and I than he has said? But there's more. We looked at it last week. Our future glory far outweighs our present suffering. And we're going to make it to future glory 
The creation groans for it. We groan for it. And the Holy Spirit in us helps us as he groans, takes our groanings and puts them into words. What more can he say to us than he has already said? There is more. And what is that more? Well, it's this amazing promise and his amazing purpose. If you're here this morning and you're someone who struggles with assurance, and I know that's a number of us. No, assurance is not of the essence of salvation. We can come to Christ and know Christ, but because of our own sin and because of suffering, have our doubts, have our fears. This section, this chapter is given to us so that we would have assurance and have reason to have assurance in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as we look at uh, these three verses over this week and next week, what I want to do this morning is I want this morning to look at verses 28 and 29. We're going to look at them in reverse order because if you're going to understand verse 28, you need to understand verse 29 first. And then next week, I know there's some of us who struggle with the great doctrine, or the great doctrines of foreknowledge, predestination, effectual calling. We're going to look at them next week in the golden chain. And um, so this week it's verses 28 and 29. And what verse 29 does is it tells us God's amazing purpose. And it And if you read verse 28 and you divorce it from verse 29, you will totally misunderstand verse 28. God working all things together for good. That's not just our temporary good. It's not like God is working all things so that there's always good in our lives as Christians. No, God works all things together for good. And what he means by that is our eternal good. And what is that eternal good for those who are called according to his purpose? Well, let's read verse 29 and see God's amazing purpose for our lives. Verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. God's ultimate eternal purpose for his people is that we would be conformed to the image of Christ. God's purpose for our lives, God's working all things together in our life so that you and I will be like Jesus Christ. Amazing news, by the way. This morning, God's purpose for you and I's life, for Christians this morning, is he's going to make us more godly. He's working all things together to that good. To that ultimate good. But not just that. That's only one part of the purpose. In order, he says in verse 29, that he might be the firstborn. In order that Christ, who is the firstborn among many brothers, in other words, in order that Christ might have the preeminence. That Christ might have the glory. God's purpose is to conform you and I, who are Christians, to the image of Jesus so that Jesus would be glorified. When we become more like Jesus, Jesus gets all the glory. Terrible illustration. Let me pick on Dick. Imagine 
all of us really admire Dick. And you know, imitation is the greatest form of flattery, and so we all adopted a, a gentleman's English accent. You know, we all put on a fine suit, and we started to act like Dick and behave like Dick. Now, I don't know if Dick would see it as flattery, but in, in, in that way, all of us acting like Dick is because we want to make much of him. We love him. We admire him. Although the English did get beat in the rugby yesterday. <laughs> but, but we want to be like him because we see there's something glorious in him. Brothers and sisters, us being conformed to the image of Christ is absolutely deliberate so that Christ might have the preeminence. So that all of us becoming more like Jesus, we're making much of Jesus. And God's purpose in doing that, conforming us to the image of Christ, is that Christ might have the preeminence. And notice how this verse ends. Among many brothers. God in his plan of salvation wants his son to have Lots and lots and lots of siblings. Brothers and sisters in Christ. The more of us, the more he's made much of. So what's God's ultimate good purpose? What's, What's our eternal good? To be like Jesus so that Jesus might be glorified among us all. I would also add, we'll look at this next weekend, the ultimate good, the ultimate purpose is glorification. The end of verse 30. But for the purpose of this week, verse 29 is God's amazing purpose. And and, and so, Christians, as we think about our life and as we think about this amazing promise that we're about to look at, know that as we unpack it, the good that has been spoken about is making us more like Jesus so that Christ might be glorified and so that other people would come to know him. Okay? Now let's look at this amazing, amazing promise. And just look at how it begins. And, and's not, and a transition word. It's not but. Because what Paul is saying here flows on from what he's just said. And if the Holy Spirit's gonna help us all the way to glory, and we need to know, we know, and, and actually when Paul writes this, he, he speaks with a certain certainty and confidence. And we know, and, and it is quite striking because back in verse 26, he said, there's things we don't know, we don't know what to pray for. And it's when we don't know what to pray for that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. And now he says, and we know. And what is it we know? Well, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Now remember, Paul's a a wise pastor, well-seasoned. He knows that when people go through suffering in this present age, when people are weak and groaning, you you know what happens? We forget. We don't know. And so he says this verse, and he begins in this way, he frames it this way, so that you and I, in this present age of suffering, would know and would not forget. We need to be reminded of this again and again. And we know 
What do we know? That for those who love God, first part, end part, and for those who are called according to his purpose. Paul uses two ways to describe the same people, the Christian. And it's fascinating the way that he describes a Christian. For those who love God. In all of Paul's writings, that is one of the most rare statements for him to describe a Christian. His favorite term is to say, in Christ. His favorite way of describing the Christian is a person who is united to Christ. And he's got no issue with speaking about those who believe in Christ. But for some strange reason, he describes the Christian in this verse as those who love Christ. Agape God. Why? If you're here this morning and you're going through suffering and you love God, take heart. Subjectively, you love God because you came to know that he first loved you. The only reason we love God is because he first loved us. We weren't born as those who love God. No, we were born by nature at enmity with God. But Romans 5 told us, but God demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, rebels, enemies, Christ died for us. And when God effectually called us, when God opened our eyes to see that, we came to love God. In our subjective experience, we love him. We don't love him as we should love him perfectly. We love him imperfectly. Our love doesn't even compare to his love because his love, he so loved this world that he gave his one and only son. But we love him with the greatest love that a child could ever show to a father. A gappy love. My son might not love me with all his mind, soul, and strength, but my son loves me with the greatest love. Because he knows I'm his father and he knows I love him. He knows I'm committed to him. And it's so fitting that Paul would actually use this description because he's just spoken about the great doctrine of adoption. The reason he describes us as those who love God is because that's the posture and that is the attitude of adopted children to their heavenly father. And then he describes the Christian from the divine perspective, not the human perspective, not the subjective perspective, but the objective perspective. The reason you and I are Christians is because we have been called according to his purpose. The reason you and I are Christians is not because of anything we did. It's because everything that God did, he called us. He spoke By his spirit, he gave us ears to hear. He made us alive. And he gifted us with the gift of faith that we put in him. For by grace you have been saved. This is not of yourselves. But this is all of God. Even the gift of faith itself. Now the reason I'm laboring to whom this promise is given is because one of the ways this promise is used and abused even by well-intent Christians is we can sometimes quote it 
to non-Christians. God works all things together for good. This isn't a promise for the non-Christian. No, this is only a promise for the Christian. Remember, Paul's trying to evangelize the Christian. Dear Christian, this is for you. This is exclusive to the Christian. God works all things together for good for those who love him and for those whom he called. Now as Paul goes on and as he unpacks this wondrous promise, this amazing promise, he wants us to know, okay, this is not for all people, this is for all of God's people, but he wants us to know that this amazing promise applies to all things that happens in the lives of God's people. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. All things. Now remember the context. Verse 18, our present sufferings. Remember the context. This creation that is subjected to the curse, that is knows frustration and futility, death and decay. All things, meaning even the bad things, the hard things, the difficult things, illness. The loss of a loved one. All things. Even the good things. The wonderful things. The things that we enjoy. All things. In the end, he works together for good. One of the biggest debates in this chapter is the fact that no one really knows the subject. Who, who works all things? So is it God? Of course it's God. So, but that's not way our translations put it. The, NI, the ESV here just says all things work together for good. Obviously it's God that works them together for good. Someone says, it must be, the reason why there's no subject is because it, it, in the context it's actually saying it's God the Holy Spirit. But So some commentators say this should say the Holy Spirit works all things together for good. And that fits, it really does. He was mentioned in the previous section and but the ESV and the King James Version, they settle for all things work together for good. Because we don't know that, that that's the missing bit. But we do know. We do know that it's God. It might not be mentioned that explicit way, but it is God who works all things, whether it's by his Holy Spirit, whether it's God the Father. We know it's by the Holy Spirit in the sense that he's working in us. We know it's by God the Father because he's sovereign of his throne and he is a faithful father working out his plans in our lives. Now, I need to be really clear because sometimes when people hear a promise and they shorten it and it kind of just is out there all the time, it grows arms and legs. This verse does not say that each thing itself is good. We've made that clear. Suffering is not good. Illness is not good. Evil is not good. God can use those things to work together for his ultimate good, but they are not good of themselves. The other things that we need, uh, the other thing we need to make sure that we don't understand, uh, that we don't think when we think of this verse is that God is working all things together for our temporary good. And, and, and I think that's the one that many Christians struggle with. I think that when you hear this verse, you think that God's going to work all things together so that by the end of the day, you're going to be okay. <laughs> you know, 
hold on to this promise and hopefully be okay. So, so, you know, this morning I wake up and God, please help me as I go to preach. I don't want to mess up. I don't want this sermon to come across as if it's, you know, lots of faults in it. I want, I want to preach this sermon well. But God, please, just by the end of the day, would, would the congregation still love me? Would they still like me? You know, God is not interested this morning in whether or not I'm a great preacher. You know what God is interested in this morning? How he can work all things to make me more like Jesus. How he can use even my weakness and my failures, even my suffering and my mess up, so that his son will get the preeminence. So that many more would come to know him and love love him. He's not working all things together for my temporary good. He's working all things together for his eternal good. And that's so important that we understand that. Now, there is a general truth that God does at times work things together in a Christian's life for good. But let's be honest, there are many of our brothers and sisters who are in prison, who are being persecuted. And they will die, some of them even today. It cannot mean that God is working all things together for their temporary good. God is in the business of doing all things to work together for our eternal good. The the, the big story of the Bible where you see that in high definition is the story of Joseph in the Old Testament, isn't it? You know, he's the son, the favorite son of Jacob. He's given the multicolored robe. He's the the favorite son of Jacob that then gets the dream that all of his brothers are going to bow down to him. He's the son who goes and tells all his brothers about his dream. Brothers hate him. They want to kill him. They were about to kill him. And then Reuben said, don't. And then they sell him into slavery to the Ishmaelites. And Joseph's taken to Egypt. And Joseph gets a job with, in Potiphar's household as a slave. And he rises to the top of his home. And he's a handsome man and he's a righteous man. And Potiphar's wife wants him. And when she doesn't get him, she accuses him of rape. And so he's sent to prison just when we think it's a rags to riches story. And he ends up languishing in prison. And remember, there's a cupbearer and a baker and they have dreams and Joseph interprets their dreams. And then they forget about him. And they get released. And it's only when the Pharaoh has his dream that the cupbearer remembers Joseph. No one can interpret Pharaoh's dream. Let's get Joseph. And Joseph interprets the dream and he gets out. And because he, he sees the dream, seven years of plenty, seven years of famine. And what ends up happening? His brothers, because of the famine, have to come to Egypt for food. And when they discover that it's their brother that's the leader in Egypt, they're terrified that Joseph is going to execute his revenge. And Joseph gives that great statement. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done. Interestingly, the saving of many lives. The Romans 8, 28 of the Old Testament is Genesis 50, verse 20. Do you know where we see where God uses all things, works them together for ultimate good? In high definition, is in the life and in especially the death 
of Jesus Christ. When wicked man nailed the son of glory to the cross, that wicked, wicked, heinous act, the greatest act of evil in the history of humanity, the murder of God, the Son. And yet God used that to bring about his great good, the saving of many. Indeed, in the death of Christ, death was dead forever for his people. And so, as we hear this amazing promise, we need to know that God can take the worst circumstances of our life. He can take all things in our life, and his purpose is to work them together for our ultimate eternal good. So let's just think about your life for a moment. Some of you are in workplaces, and you've got a boss that is the pain in the neck. It makes your life difficult. makes your colleagues' lives difficult. Why end might God be using that in your life? Well, to teach you something about the patience of Christ? Maybe you need to share in the sufferings of Christ to know what it is to suffer unjustly. Because God's end is to make you more like Christ. Some of you might right now find yourself in a season of suffering. It might be emotional suffering. It might be mental suffering. It might be spiritual suffering. It might be physical suffering. God may be using that because he knows that it's when we are physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually suffering. It's often when we're at his weakest, but it's when he can be at his strongest in us. It's where he loves to showcase his strength. And it's often in the seasons that we enjoy even greater and more meaningful communion when we are desperately dependent upon him. You know, it's funny Sometimes the people that I want to see come to faith don't come to faith when it's the, the sermon or the, the conversation that went so well. It's sometimes the sermon I think was the worst sermon, the write-off that God does his greatest work. It's sometimes the person who I'm least thinking about in my radar that starts to, it's very clear that God is at work in them and God is drawing them to himself and it's actually not my strength, it's been my weakness, it's been my suffering that he is using to witness to them. God works all things together for his ultimate good to make us more like Christ, to make, to bring many more sons and daughters to his son so that Christ will get the preeminence. And one of the things I need us to understand is that as we go through many different things in life, everything we go through, like we, we actually confessed it together in the Heidelberg Catechism, it goes through the father, fatherly, all-wise, all-loving fingers of God. Your life is safe in the hands of God. God will let you go through things. He's not the author of sin. He's not the author of evil. But in his sovereign providence, he'll let you go through things. And it's because he, he is the God who loves you, will work these things together for your ultimate eternal good. And that, brothers and sisters, is one of the greatest comforts to 
the Christian. God loves us that he uses all things to make us more like Jesus. So, when you get to the end of each day, the question is not how has God worked this day together for my temporary good. The question might be to reflect on how has God used this day for my eternal good. To make me more like Jesus. And know that God's ways are not our ways. He often uses our weaknesses and our failing and our suffering because that's the way he gets most glory and that's often the way he does his best work in us and through us. Now, what more can he say to you and I than he's already said to us? I don't think there's any greater promise than this. God works together all things. And see that verb, works together, it's present tense. It means every moment of every day, of every week, of every month, of every year, every single moment, God is working together all things for his end. This is an incredible promise for us as a church family. This is a credible promise as we go into a new week. God's going to use all things for his great greater good for the glory of his son. R.C. Sproul said there is no other text that demonstrates so clearly and magnificently the beauty of God's sovereign providence than this one. The master plan of God's redemptive providence is he brings good out of evil, he brings glory out of suffering. Verses like Romans 2:28 assure us that no suffering is wasted and God is always at work for our glory, for our good and his glory. There is no better promise than this one. Krishna, I'm going to ask you a question. I want you to answer the question in your head. Will you be in glory? Will you be like Christ in glory? If your answer in your head is, I hope so, I don't deserve to be there. I hope I'll get there. I hope, I, I, hope, I hope he'll let me in. If that's your answer, it might sound humble, but can I tell you it's actually very arrogant. If you say, I hope so, I hope he'll let me in, it's because you're still trusting in yourself. It's because you're still looking to yourself. The Christian's answer to the question, will I get to glory, has to be absolutely yes. And that's not arrogance, that's actually humility. That's humility because that is the most God-glorifying, Christ-exalting, spirit-magnifying statement you could ever make. Jesus Christ did not die in vain. What more could Paul say to us to convince us that we are safe and secure in Christ Jesus? What more could he say to us that all things are going to work together for our eternal good? And so, 
is he evangel- evangelizes us Christians. He wants us to be able to say, I will get in. And the only basis upon which I will get in is Jesus Christ. And I'm so confident of it. That I'm safe and secure in him. That his spirit is at work in me. That God the Father is using all things, working them together for my eternal good. That gives God the glory he is due because it is God who is committed on getting us there. Salvation is from first to last, his work, not our work. One of my favorite hymns is Blessed Assurance. Blessed Assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God. Born of his spirit, washed in his blood. This is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. I, in my Savior, am happy and blessed, watching and waiting, looking above, filled with his goodness, lost in his love. Romans 8, 28. An amazing promise with an amazing purpose that Christ would be glorified as we become like him and as he uses us in the great work of mission to see more brothers and sisters brought in. He does it all, but he uses us. He uses everything to that end. What a promise. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we we thank you so much that given us this incredible promise you've reminded us of your incredible purposes God we pray that as we even live this day no matter what we are going through we would take heart we would rejoice because we know that all things are being used by you for those of us who love you and who are called according to your purposes for our ultimate and our eternal good. God, thank you. Thank you for using even this day to make us more like Jesus. I thank you for using this day so that many more could come to know Jesus. And thank you that your desire above all is that Jesus would have the preeminence and all the glory. And so we say, praise be to him. And it's in his name we pray this. Amen.